welcome to episode two of the Master of Divinity podcast. Today, it's a drama in three acts, parts two and three. We're moving on from our first theme, Exodus, and beginning this episode with the theme of exile, specifically the exile experienced by the Israelites beginning around 586 BCE. That's before the Common Era, formerly known as just plain old B.C. We'll get to the details in a moment, but before we do, we need to get from there to here. Moses leads the people through years of wandering, listens to their complaints, negotiates with God regarding their care and feeding, shares the law, and arrives at the edge of the promised land, exhausted and sadly dies. Joshua, his right-hand man and successor, leads the people over the Jordan and into the land of Canaan, and the conquest begins. If you were reading over my shoulder just now, you would have noticed that conquest is in quotes, something that you can't see on the radio. It's at this stage that we could finally examine some archaeological evidence for the rather dramatic events described, if it existed but it does not. But we need not despair or begin tearing pages from our Bibles because these things are usually a matter of degrees. A band of escaped slaves, uh, unique in their self-understanding, enter a land and begin to settle. Conflicts arise, even the kinds of clashes that give birth to epic stories, but then they get on with the business of living in the land. If we had more time, we would look at law codes from the same place and time, and foundational myths from the same place and time, and the development of languages from the same place and time, and begin to see patterns. The Israelites embrace some things around them and reject others, but there is little doubt that they have neighbors who helped form them. Like the Anglo-Saxons entering Roman Britain, we expect to find evidence that one group replaces the other, but that's not what happened. The local population adapts. The newcomers are influenced, and new things emerge, like the English language. But, But I've jumped way ahead, because we need to hear from Moses giving his best advice on what to do when you get settled in the promised land, adding a bit of foreshadowing for good measure. Uh, Pardon me the extended quote, but it's a good one. I'm reading from Deuteronomy 8, beginning at verse 11. This is the time, Moses said, to be careful. Beware that in your plenty you do not forget the Lord your God and disobey his commands, regulations, and laws. For when you have become full and prosperous and have built fine homes to live in, and when your flocks and herds have become very large and your silver and gold have multiplied along with everything else, that is the time to be careful. Do not become proud at that time and forget the Lord your God, who rescued you from slavery in the land of Egypt. Do not forget that he led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with poisonous snakes and scorpions, where it was so hot and dry. He gave you water from the rock. He fed you with manna in the wilderness, a food unknown to your ancestors. He did this to humble you and to test you for your own good. He did it so that you would never think that it was your own strength and energy that made you wealthy. 
always remember that it is the Lord your God who gives you power to become rich, and he does it to fulfill the covenant he made with your ancestors. If I assigned you this reading and I asked you to preach about humility, uh, what would you say? You can pause here if you wish. Maybe maybe your sermon title could be, uh, God did this, or you didn't build that, uh, to quote someone famous. Moving on. Once the people enter the promised land, the command to never forget that you were once slaves in Egypt is never far from the lips and the consciousness of the Israelites. While still wandering, God provided two sets of laws, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, and the Book of the Covenant. The first law, which Jack Miles called the the least culture-bound moral code ever written, provides a a 10-point summary to human behavior that continues to inform our moral assumptions. The second, uh, 600 or so laws that defined the Israelites, emerge from the first 10 and define how the Israelites will serve God and differentiate themselves from their neighbors. And this is where the trouble starts. The last section of Deuteronomy 8 is pretty clear. It reads, But I assure you of this, if you ever forget the Lord your God and follow other gods, worshipping and bowing down to them, you will certainly be destroyed. Just as the Lord has destroyed other nations in your path, you also will be destroyed for not obeying the Lord your God. There's no ambiguity in Moses' words. And as he speaks, he gives birth to the prophetic tradition that informs our next theme and sets the people on a collision course with the God of law and justice. Read the story of David, Israel's greatest king, and you'll see the extent to which the people had difficulty with the top ten as well as all the other laws of Moses. After the conquest of the promised land, uh, after the period of kings and Israel's divided, uh, the people fall further and further from the law and no longer heed the warning of Moses. Enter the prophets, beginning uh, with the first chapter of Isaiah. Here's a quote. Come now, let us argue this out, says the Lord. No matter how deep the stain of your sins, I can remove it. I can make you as clean as freshly fallen snow. Even if you are stained as red as crimson, I can make you as white as wool. If you will only obey me and let me help you, then you will have plenty to eat. But if you keep turning away and refusing to listen, then you will be destroyed by your enemies. I, the Lord, have spoken. It continues. See how Jerusalem, once so faithful, has become a prostitute. Once the home of justice and righteousness, she is now filled with murderers. Once like pure silver, you have become like worthless slag. Once so pure, you are now like watered-down wine. Your leaders are rebels, the companions of thieves. All of them take bribes and refuse to defend the orphans and the widows. So what, what do you make of all this anger? spoken by God, through the prophet. How does it make you feel? You can pause here if you wish. 
The words record God's profound disappointment with the people. They have abandoned God and ignored the law. They have opened themselves to the very threat that Moses himself suggested while the people were still wandering in the desert. The exile, the period following 586 BC when the Assyrians overran the southern kingdom, has been referred to as the 9-11 of the Bible. All the prophetic writings that precede the event and all the writings that follow include the work of 17 prophets and Psalms, much of wisdom literature. As most of the Bible was written down after 586, it's possible to see the stain of exile in, in much of the Bible. Perhaps the best known of the exile writings is Psalm 137. I'm going to read part of it to you. Beside the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept as we thought of Jerusalem. We put away our lyres, hanging them on the branches of the willow trees. From there, our captives demanded a song of us. Our tormentors requested a joyful hymn. Sing us one of those songs of Jerusalem. But how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? And then part of the ending. O Babylon, you will be destroyed. Happy is the one who pays you back for what you've done to us. I'll I'll leave it to you to look at the last verse of Psalm 137. It's too graphic for podcasting. Um, Needless to say, when we read, happy is the one who pays you back for what you've done, you've moved into the emotional texture of exile, to the frustration of an entire nation forced into servitude and humiliated at the hands of their captors. How could we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land has become a refrain for any who feel dislocated or separated from God and God's desire for our lives. Recently, much has been written about the experience of the church in our age and the extent to which we too are in exile. We live surrounded by a culture that has largely turned its back on God and the same alternate community of Moses that Walter Brueggemann described last time. Fifty years ago, people understood that Dr. King's message for justice and equality was also the church's message and that reaching the promised land was a biblical goal. Now the church seems little more than a vehicle for the most repressive voices in society. At the same time, we live in a society where becoming famous seems far more important than making a difference or helping others. So are we in exile And if we are, how do we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? You can pause here and discuss if you wish. Back to our friend Isaiah. He's all judgment and warning for 39 chapters. And then somewhere between Isaiah 39 and Isaiah 40, there's a profound shift in God's approach to Israel. And three chapters later, we get this wonderful summary of the shift, words of comfort in the midst of trouble. It says, But now, O Israel, the Lord who created you says, Do not be afraid, for I have ransomed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you go through deep waters and great trouble, I will be with you. When you go through rivers of difficulty, you will not drown. 
When you walk through the fire of oppression, you will not be burned up. The flames will not consume you. Others died that you might live. I traded their lives for yours because you are precious to me. You are honored. I love you. The remarkable shift here is in the language God uses to describe his relationship to the people. Prior to Isaiah 40, God has a variety of responses to the people, regard, trust, hope, uh, intimate knowledge, but not love. God was steadfast, but never in love with these people. Then something changes. A, a new intimacy begins. Again, uh, from Isaiah. For the Lord has called you back from your grief, as though you were a young wife abandoned by her husband, says God. For a brief moment I abandoned you, but with great compassion I will take you back. In a moment of anger I turn my face away for a little while, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. So, how do you feel about this sudden shift, this new intimacy uh, with God, this love? We could take a moment to discuss if you wish. So exile has ended, and a new phase in our relationship with God has begun. And this prepares us for the new, new phase that follows in part three. I'm calling this part Emmanuel. God's desire to be intimate, to understand the human experience, to live with us in a new way, is where we now turn. Again, uh, Scripture gives us the meaning we need. Reading from John 1, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And from Colossians 1. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. And finally from Philippians 2. Who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Emmanuel, God with us is obviously the most familiar part of Scripture for us. And, and these three passages, John 1, Colossians 1, and Philippians 2, weave together the story of God's desire to be with us, God's desire to have an intimate relationship. And the last of these three, Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, makes the connection to Good Friday and Easter. So, uh, a final question for this episode. How does God's desire to be with us lead to Jesus' death and resurrection? Today has been part study, part sermon, and more words than I think I hoped. 
As our study unfolds, we'll spend more time on Jesus Christ as revealed in Scripture and how the New Testament fits into the rest of the biblical record. For today, I want to leave you with the three-part movement of Exodus, Exile, and Emmanuel and allow you to digest the generous meal that you've been given. Perhaps the only thing more eccentric than a podcast with questions for discussion would be a podcast with homework. Well, it's not really homework, just an invitation to perhaps set aside some time to explore some of the books we've touched on in this episode. If something has caught your imagination, read more and allow the text to speak to your heart in a new way. Thank you for joining me.